seeing the state of some of the people in our country and what the toppling lifestyle means to them, the inauthenticity of it. And I did play a huge role, and I do feel badly. I know a lot of people will go, oh, please, it's not that deep, but they haven't walked my shoes and seen the results of it. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Ursula Chikane is a celebrated South African broadcaster, the enchanting presenter of Top Billing and MTN Gladiators. Ursula is with us in studio today to talk about her life beyond the top billing glitz and glam the lessons of her globe-trotting adventures, and her faith as a committed Catholic. I am Ricardo de Silva, and this is Expanding Horizons. Ursula, welcome to Expanding Horizons. Thank you very much, Ricardo. Can we just talk about that enchanting bit for a, sure, for a second? Sure, please. Let's, let's go from there. <laughs> Well, I've been called many things throughout my career, but enchanting is not one of them. Thank you very much. Let's talk about Ursula long before top billing. Tomboy. Yeah, where did Ursula start? (laughs) Sure. So I grew up, um, first of all, born cradle Catholic, went to Bosman Second Primary for grade one and grade two, and then from standard one onwards to St. Catherine's Convent. But, and strangely enough, I was talking about this with a friend yesterday. Growing up, I had very few girls as friends and mostly guys as friends. And I think that, you know, when you grow up with boys as friends, they show you a very different part of the world. So I grew up believing that I had no limits, that if I wanted to climb a tree, I really could, as long as I was in a pair of shorts or jeans. If I wanted to jump over a fence, it was fine. The worst thing that was going to happen to me is that I'd possibly get my legs scraped and bruised and cut, but that was it. And my family very often couldn't understand why I surrounded myself with boys practically throughout my life. And it was that fearless optimism that I got from my guy friends that set me up. So when I grew up as a tomboy, I really was rough and tumble. When we had to go to mass in dresses, I did not like it one bit because they just were so inconvenient. After mass, we'd go home and I wouldn't be able to run and play in the streets with my guy friends because I had this silly dress on. So I couldn't wait to get home and just change out of it. And that tomboy nature has sort of stuck with me, even though after joining programs like Top Billing, I learned how to master heels and strut instead of walk and learned an appreciation for dresses. But I pretty much am still the tomboy. I wouldn't have said. You wouldn't have? <laughs> oh, that's because I'm sitting with my legs crossed and <laughs> acting like a lady. And I think because of the public persona that you carried for so long. And I have known you now for a number of years. Yeah. And so we have had a few conversations and I yes. can see what you're saying. But it's certainly not what we see on screen. Well, you see, on screen, you're made to be the person that the audience wants to see. And the way I landed up on top billing was via my work in sports broadcasting. So I was covering a horse race in Cape Town and the producers of top billing saw me and they enjoyed how how much of a ladylike tomboy I was. And by that stage, I had already done live broadcasting for years and years and was already an OB specialist as a presenter. And when I joined top billing... The program was still very young. 
but they put me in a little box, the tomboy in heels. So I would do the skydiving, the mountain climbing, the river rafting, anything that needed a, a fabulously fearless female. They would just let me do that. Until one day, one of the newer producers, Jerry, said to me, he calls me Pansul. He said, you know, Pansul, they've got you stereotyped as the tomboy. I was like, I don't mind that at all. He says, but what happens when you have to grow up and out of the tomboy stereotype? What happens when you have to become the lady? And I thought, well, then I just become the lady. And after a meeting with Patient Stevens, I said, you know, I'd really like to grow up now. And they allowed me to. And then I did become the lady and learned to master the heels properly. So I remember mm. Ursula Stapelfeld on yes. top billing. Yes. And Dr. Michael Moll in Basisana yes. Kumalo. Oh, I don't think it was the Kumalo days. then, was it? No, she was Mahari Mele. And this but, was um, after she had won Miss SA. Hmm. Um, she was Basitsana Mahadimele, and then I remember her wedding being recorded for Top Billing. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I remember that. And I certainly aspired as a young 13, 14-year-old to Ooh. the Top Billing lifestyle. And yeah. I remember talking to you about this Oof. not so long ago. Yeah. And you told me how much regret in some ways there is about the lifestyle that yeah. Top Billing portrays. Yeah. That is somehow unattainable, in fact. It is unattainable for the great majority of South Africans across the colour divide, isn't it? When you have a look at the sheer glitz and glamour, when I was much younger, I honestly celebrated the show as an aspirational vehicle to motivate people to work towards a goal and achieve it. But then somewhere along the line, this crass materialism crept in and the show was, I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but it really was just celebrating how much you can get as fast as you can get it. Maybe it's because I grew up, maybe it's because the blinkers fell from my eyes, maybe it's because through things like social media pressure, I was being forced to see the show through different eyes. Yes, the travel is amazing. And yes, we didn't always go to five-star destinations. Yes, we sometimes did do the camping and the normal stuff. But by and large, I started seeing more and more people without any regret doing heinous things to achieve the top-billing lifestyle, the top-billing house through crime, the top-billing car through crime, the top-billing this, that, and the next thing. And then people taking huge loans, getting themselves into horrible debt so they could have a top-billing wedding. Mm -hmm. And then not long after they've had their top-billing wedding, they saddled with this debt and all the stress that comes with it, and nobody talks about the top-billing divorce. I always thought Chanel cocktails, champagne, and caviar, yeah. that's really what came to mind. And then I heard an interview with you yeah. where you said, there was no caviar. It was really burgers <laughs> because that was the production budget. Production budgets today are even smaller. They're even more squeezed. So I remember my 35th birthday. I was in Paris. It was the first time Top Billing ever went to cover the Paris Fashion Week. And I just could not believe that God had brought me to 
to this city for this occasion. And I remember being on my mobile phone, speaking to my best friend, Katinka. She had phoned to wish me a very happy birthday. And she was like, I can't believe what a glamorous birthday you're having. And I looked down at myself and I was in my Max Mara outfit in hideously expensive shoes. But I remember that I'd had a dry baguette and coffee for breakfast because we were staying in this zero-star hotel. So how ridiculous. The Max Mara outfit the stylist had taken on APRO for me, and this is what I was wearing. And we didn't have sufficient budget to take a taxi from our zero-star hotel to the Louvre where we were going to shoot our opening links. We had to walk Blocks and blocks and blocks. And I was walking in these heels very stupidly instead of just packing a pair of tackies or flip-flops or whatever. So it's a complete facade. (laughs) On the one hand, it is. On the other, it isn't. It's a facade in that we were not living this top billing lifestyle, but we were producing content that made it look like we were. I don't want to come across as bashing the production because when it goes through the edit and all the other machines and comes out as this fabulous product, you must remember that a lot of hard work went into it. It would have been great if we had had both sides of the coin shown. So, Look, the other thing is nobody wants to see their presenter looking as bad as they're feeling. Looking bad. If if that makes sense. Sure. Could we have done it authentically with no hair, no makeup, no fabulous clothes? Paris Fashion Week. It wouldn't be showbiz. (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't be showbiz. But these are the paradoxes that you're left with afterwards. Mm. A lot of people say that we were selling people dreams. Mm. A lot of people say that we were selling people motivation. So at the end of the day, does it come down to how you view it from whichever lens you're looking at the program through? But what I'm left with, the residual effects, I just feel so bad because I do think after all these years of looking back, of reflecting, of seeing the state of some of the people in our country and what the top billing lifestyle means to them, the inauthenticity of it. And I did play a huge role in building that brand. And I do feel badly. I know a lot of people will go, oh, please, it's not that deep. But they haven't walked my shoes and seen the results of it. Sure. And there's time yet, you know, shows like this and so many other things that you've been doing, working with young children to restore their smiles, etc. Yeah. All that has really, the whole experience of top billing, and let's not call it the top billing experience all the time and keep <laughs> on bashing the show, but the whole experience of top billing brought you to where you are today. hundred percent. You may not have been woke, as people <gasps> might say today, woke, oh, or you may not have awoken to yes. what, what you are today, who Ashley is today. Look, the other thing I've also been advised to do is to put everything into context and remember the perspective. The early years of the show, it was done in a particular period in the country's history. And I must remember everything that was going on at that time. But then again, there comes a point where the blinkers are pulled off everyone and we should have gone in a different direction. I do think so. I am 
And I always will be incredibly grateful for the platform that Top Billing presented me with, the number of passports that have been filled with stamps from countries I never would have been able to afford to visit on my own. The life experiences, the food. Oh my. <laughs> glorious, <laughs> the food. glorious food. <laughs> I am a lover of food and travel. I would not have been able to, to afford the experiences that I was afforded by top billing. So on the one hand, I'm eternally grateful. And on the other hand, I also, I do carry the weight of responsibility for what I've contributed to what some sections of society have become today. But I, I'm going to force you into a redemptive moment, if you mm. don't mind. Beyond the glitz, even in top billing, there must have been a moment for you where something happened, whether on camera or off camera, that you thought, this is what the show's about. You know, when you interview people who have put their hearts and souls into the businesses that they've built, and they drop these nuggets, this wisdom, the motivation, you think, yes, this is what it's about. Then you also interview people who really did nothing to land in the places that they did, the mansions in which they lived. So I don't know, Ricardo. I think that in my heart of hearts, I'm a socialist with a capitalist bent. <laughs> it's really, yeah, I confuse myself sometimes because I also think, wow, we did spectacularly great work and we should be celebrated for it. And on the other hand, I think a lot of the work we did was a spectacular fail and we really ought to just take the, take the L for it. Mm. In this age of Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, etc., yes. social media, young people seem to think that the broadcasting game yes. is an easy one. <laughs> There's a craft. There is a craft and you do need to continue working on it. Yes, we realize that God blesses people with certain talents and they are naturally born broadcasters. But before you can get in front of a mic, you need to know about mic techniques. You also need to realize that there are people who've been there before you. And when a seasoned broadcaster says, try not to do X, Y, and Z, it's not because they want to pull you down. It's because they want you to experience the kind of longevity that they themselves have been blessed with. Remember also that you're surrounded, particularly in TV, by a crew that also wants the best for you. So when the cameraman says, drop your chin, and when the sound engineer says, don't over-project, they're doing it for a reason. If they didn't do that, you might not be called back to present that show that you think God bless you with for a reason the next time they are filming it. You need to realize that if you're going to be masterful at anything, you've got to put in the hours, you've got to put in the work. You cannot microwave success. In the short term, maybe it's going to work for you, but then you need to realize that somebody else is going to come along and turn your microwave off and kick you out of your spot. There's a little known moment, or at least it was little known to me. I learned of it a few weeks ago when I was researching to speak to you today. You had this freak accident. Oh, it was freak accident on steroids. So it was the day after my 39th birthday. 
And we were shooting at a home in Woodmead, a doctor and his family. And from the time we did the interviews about the decor, etc., before we did the dolled up and glammed up links, people kept slipping and falling and just all these things were happening. And before we started shooting the links, which is where we do the glammed up hello and welcome, one of the, I think it was the sound man that said, you know, someone's going to fall badly on these floors, highly polished floors. And we were watching one of our inserts on top billing. And then the producer, Lizzie, said, all right, let's get to work. First positions, please. And I was in this beautiful Vera Wang dress. My makeup was done. And I was barefoot, carrying my heels in my hands. And the makeup artist on that night was the famed Ntato Mashishi. And the stylist was Robert Bell. And as I, I did like a little hop and a skip to first positions and next thing my foot caught this mat and I went flying. Anyone who's ever slipped on a mat would know that you're meant to gently slip and land on your glutes and that would be it. Injure your coccyx at the worst. Well, I slipped and then flipped in midair and landed on my face. The cameraman that night to this day, cannot explain what he saw. He said he watched it in slow motion, and it's as though somebody had yanked me and thrown me into the air and then bashed me into the floor. The result was that my face blew up and started bruising almost immediately. I'd lost four teeth in front, and the one tooth was lodged in my top lip, and to this day, I've still got the scars. So when you look closely, you would think that I've got maybe a permanent fever blister, but it's not. It's just the scar tissue from the stitches inside. And my bottom teeth were also impacted. So now they're all skew and strange. And I ended up in hospital. But consummate professional that you are. Not a drop of blood landed on the Vera Wang. Vera Wang was saved. <laughs> not a drop. As this was unfolding, I was mumbling through my now swollen lips, saying to Robert, I can't go to the hospital in wardrobe. Let's get me out of this. And he gently did get me out of it. And it's unbelievable because I landed on my face and immediately there was just this pool of blood. But I also was positioning myself so that nothing could get on the dress, on the shoes, Incredible, the instincts that take over in that moment. This didn't come across in the interview I heard with you, but knowing something of you, I'm presuming, and I may be wrong, this was a deeply spiritual moment. It has to have been, because after that, my life took a completely different direction, and I'm whirling up again. It was an earth-shattering realization for me. My smile was taken from me. My ability to communicate was taken from me. For months upon months, while I had, there weren't even braces, they were almost like dentures. Because what happened, Ricardo, is that I had lost a lot of my gums mm. along with my teeth. I had a plastic surgeon trying to sew my lips together properly. So I couldn't do radio work. I couldn't do emceeing work. And at that stage of my career, I was in huge demand to do gala dinners and 
conferences and all sorts of things. So I couldn't show my face because I had these incredibly long teeth <laughs> just to fill the gap. I just, it looked like I had two pieces of chewing gum stuck to my gums. My battle, or my journey rather, to fixing my face and my smile lasted over three years. I had no idea it was going to take that long. And I then became the person, as I said to Anele in the interview, that was smiling and laughing behind her hand because I just didn't want people to see the mess that was going on. And eventually one night I was researching dental implants and saw Dr. Ade Mayer's page on Google. The next day I sent off an email. She said, come through, drove through to Pretoria and she worked with another doctor and they managed to fix my smile. And the day that all of this eventually came together, so I now have dental implants, and they innovated a new way as well of splitting the dental implants so that I'd be able to speak with a modicum of siblings, which people that don't have the broadcasting ear wouldn't know. But if I didn't have the split between these two front teeth, I couldn't say my S properly. And I like just a little bit of sibilance in my voice. And that's what they did. They split the implant. Instead of having one long four-toothed implant, they then split it into two. Mm -hmm. And after Dr. Day showed me the final result, I just bawled. It's not my original smile. My face has changed shape quite considerably because of the impact that the loss of teeth and the impact of the fall had on my jaw. But I think I look pretty close to my original self. I'll never have my original smile back, which is sad in a way because I like that smile. But the one that I do have now, I'm like... Your face is lighting up. <laughs> <laughs> you don't understand the impact of not being able to smile openly and widely until your smile is taken from you. And we do, we vastly underrate the impact of a warm, genuine smile on ourselves and on the people who are witnessing that smile. Most certainly. A smile opens up the day. Your honestly. And then you, you see these little kiddies that are born with cleft lips and cleft palates who go through the surgeries with the Smile Foundation. And by the time their work is done, how not only their faces light up when they're shown a full bright smile, but their families and their communities as well. Seeing the power of that smile, it's unbelievable. So no more top billing, but no. there's certainly things that are lighting up your life. What are they? Well, I get to play great music on Power 98.7 on Sundays. I used 3 to, to have, 6 p.m. I used to have the 6 to 9 p.m. slot, and now I'm 3 to 6 p.m. Yeah. And there again, another paradox. So here I am trying to be a good Catholic girl, and then I play music by Teddy Pendergrass, which is so... <laughs> Which is so, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, Teddy Pendergrass and his, um, and his music. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> if anybody knows Teddy Pendergrass and Barry White as well, it's, it's the kind of music that invites people to illicit relationships. <laughs> <laughs> 
But we're okay with relationships. <laughs> but it's the illicitness of it all. Anyway. So Power FM lights you up. Yeah. Uh, and you're doing a number of other things as well. Yeah. Uh, so you're an entrepreneur, a skilled entrepreneur. Well, I wouldn't say skilled, but I'm definitely enjoying the journey. I have a very tiny, very lean little startup called Ubertan South Africa. And again, I just sometimes you've got to marvel at God's sense of humor. My team and I stage prep bodybuilding athletes for competitions. So we spray we spray them to bring the definition out on stage. I mean, honestly, if anybody had said to me four years ago that this is what I would be doing as an entrepreneur and loving it, I would have said no. And here's the thing, you know, Malcolm Gladwell and his 10,000 hours thing. So with broadcasting, my dad reminded me that when I was just learning how to read and write competently. I would stand on a bench or whatever I could get my hands on and read clippings from the Sunday Times in front of the bathroom mirror. Because for me, the bathroom mirror was about the size of a TV monitor. That was where my broadcasting started. Then with Ubertan South Africa, I had been fake tanning for about 15 years. Because after I turned 35, 36-ish, I started realizing the damage the sun was doing to my skin. So I previously used to just lie in the sun and bake, and now I'm paying the price for it in terms of the pigmentation that keeps coming to the surface. And I knew that if I wanted longevity in broadcasting, particularly on TV, I would need to keep my face as dewy and as fresh and as ageless for as long as possible. And people were just loving the color and the density of the skin under the studio lights. So I would just put the fake tan on, smelled horrible, but did the job. So by the time I started researching the whole spray tanning business, I had quite a few hours under my belt and quite a lot of knowledge about the process and what it took and the kinds of colors that I wanted. And I emptied my savings account and invested heavily in machines and tents and importing products. Wow. God writes straight through crooked lines, they say. I mean, he does indeed. He does indeed. And I'm loving it. Absolutely loving it. So you've just spoken about your father. Tell us about your family. Who is Ursula behind the camera? Behind the camera, I am I'm trying really hard to invest in my filial piety. I'm one you of six. You might need to unpack that for us. <laughs> Even for me. <laughs> so I grew up in a traditional Catholic family. Mum is a convert to the church from the New Apostolic Church. We are faith and cultural Catholics. And part of the reasons why I really feel fortunate to have been born into Catholicism is that we've, we've lived the culture of the faith all our lives. I understand what it is to be part of a Catholic family. So the investments you put into your faith as a young person really start paying off later on when God takes you through all these really powerful conversion moments. 
after matric, I left the church as I, I couldn't get away from it fast enough because reflecting back on what I experienced as a young Catholic at the hands of other Catholics and Catholic nuns, I just was like, this cannot be from God. It just, these people have done my head in. And then my route back into the faith was via a charismatic church. I was at Rhema the one day and Pastor Ray was having a good old go at Our Lady and something in my spirit just said, no, this is not it. The next Thursday, I went to St. Charles in Victory Park. And as I walked in, there was the guest book and I turned the page and it just said, welcome home. For a lot of people, that would not be as powerful as it was for me, knowing the journey I had just been on, looking for the truth. And I fell to my knees and that was it. Straight back into Catholicism. Wow. Went to confession. <laughs> as a good Catholic. As a good Catholic. So I really have my parents to thank for for bringing me up so faithfully in the church. Mom would haul us off to church every Sunday, no matter what. I've never been a morning person. So when we started going to St. John's Parish in Florida, she was like, okay, this is going to suit Ursula better because instead of the seven o'clock mass in Bosmont, we can now go to the 10 o'clock mass. Mm -hmm. So she can wake up when she wakes up, which is great. And I just, even until recently, if I didn't have my Catholic faith, I don't know where I would be in this world. I don't. I call on the saints regularly. I do the flying novena regularly. Our Lady is working overtime for me all the time. My dad recently had a very bad fall and landed up in hospital. And I found out about St. Chabel Makhlouf. And was it Makhlouf Chabel? No, Chabel Makhlouf. And I had the holy oils brought in from Rome and we administered them to dad. And I believe in miracles because I've seen them unfold in front of my eyes. And sometimes even years later, when you look at how your life has progressed, you go, oh, okay, that thing I prayed for like 12 years ago, it actually came through like four years ago. You'd forgotten you even prayed for it. And there it was. It always impressed me, Ursula. We met at Holy Trinity Catholic Church yes. at the 6 p.m. Mass. Mm. You would go there after your show, faithfully, mm. or mm. maybe just before the show. I'm not, I don't know. I think it, was, it would have been after because it was 6 p.m. It would have been after because before I did Soul Power, I was on the 3 to 6. Saturday and Sunday. Saturday and yeah. Sunday. And then I would be able to sneak in just after Father got into the church. One of the things that you grow to understand is that you do have your Sunday obligation. That's one of the things I really didn't get before I got it. So I appreciated that I could go to Mass after having come from my radio show. And I think that's what really impressed me was you made that commitment. I don't know everybody that's on the airwaves, but I did know you. It meant something to me to know that a public persona also had a very deep spiritual life. Mm. And so it just helped to uncover that for me. And I, and I suppose that's what I wanted to ask you about is that public versus private self, perhaps as we spoke about this earlier, a performative extroversion, <laughs> but actually an introvert at heart. A shy introvert at that. 
You know, Ricardo, as a cradle Catholic, and I think I can say this about most cradle Catholics, we do tend to take our faith for granted because we're just so used to it. We just go to Mass every Sunday, we go through the rituals, we go through the prayers, and that's it. When you don't understand why we do things the way we do them, oh, the statues, the incense, the Pope, the da-da-da, go straight to God. Yes, we do. But once you also understand the intercessory links and why they're there, oh, our church is so rich in tradition. So I had a lot of internal turmoil. And I thank God for allowing me to leave the church in order to discover the fullness of the truth. I learned so much about my faith. I started researching. And this is where my love for our saints came about. There's a saint for virtually everything. Poor St. Anthony of Padua. He works overtime for me. Who's your favorite saint? Is it him? St. Francis. I was born on his feast day. Francis of Assisi. Of Assisi. I've always had, I've always had a soft spot for him. Um, St. Therese of Lesseaux. I just, I couldn't get through without her. St. Makhlouf now as well. He's a go-to. St. Joseph. Oh, he's taught me so much. St. Pope John Paul II, of course. St. Mother Teresa. Oh, I think she is the bee's knees. Our church is in a very difficult time. The scandals of sexual abuse... It's not something that we can simply say the church is under attack. It's the devil. How, as a lay Catholic, do you continue to live faithfully or try to live faithfully in Catholicism despite this very dark side? Yeah, sure. So one of my very, very, very good and dear friends, Dion Dupont, he and I had this talk about the sexual abuse scandals Back in the 90s already, and I do know that a lot of Catholics have left the church because of that, my thing is this, there are enemies outside the church and there are enemies inside the church. I am not a Catholic for the sake of a priest. I'm a Catholic for the sake of what Jesus promised us, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I am a Catholic for the teachings. I'm, I'm a, whew. I know that the church is in big trouble, but hasn't she always been? And I am not minimizing at all the dangerous position in which we find ourselves. I'm not minimizing at all what the victims of the church still continue to go through today. At the end of the day, I am trusting Jesus himself. I am trusting that when I go for communion, if I'm getting communion from a pedophile, I am trusting that the sacrament is in that communion. I can't leave the church that Jesus started. It's been over 2,000 years. And despite the greatest efforts of bad Catholics, bad popes, bad priests, bad nuns even at St. Catherine's convent, bad lay people, it stands despite patriarchy in the church. It stands despite infighting at the Vatican. Despite even myself, the church remains. So what do we need to do today to keep it going? <sighs> it's such a loaded question. 
Oh, it's so loaded. I think the church needs the body of Christ to keep praying for the benefit of the church. By the body of Christ, we mean the people of God. The people of God. There is a new evangelization that's going on, and I really do appreciate it. I think that we need to catechize our young Catholics fully and properly. We can keep reminding ourselves that our faith is also a faith of accountability, where not everything goes. And we do live in in a society of this instant gratification, and I don't mean to hurt your feelings. Sometimes with charity, we've got to call things out and say a thing as it is. The pedophiles in our church need to go the same way as the pedophiles in our education system, in our police system need to go. We cannot have pedophiles in priestly garments. Yes, so we call ourselves expanding horizons. How do you see yourself as someone who expands the horizons of hope? I don't. I see myself as an ever-evolving Catholic, and I don't know why I'm crying again. (laughs) (sighs) Our faith is just so rich and layered and beautiful. And I keep learning more and more about it. The more fallible I am as a human being, the more I realize that our faith through the ages has been built to support and cushion and keep me going. All I can say is that I'm grateful that I'm loved and cared for by a living God who's brought me through so much and who keeps forgiving me despite myself. Ursula, thank you. Thank you for joining us today and for being so candid uh, in everything that you've shared. Thank God there's not a camera in the studio. God bless you, Ricardo. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa, with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Ricardo De Silva. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.